Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Here is Dr. Armin Schwarzbach. I'm a medical doctor and specialist for laboratory medicine. I'm from Army Labs in Germany, laboratory specialized for Lyme disease and other co-infections. I want to talk today about Lyme borreliosis or Lyme disease about symptoms, modern laboratory tests, and new therapy options in chronic Lyme disease and also co-infections. Part one, the spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi. You see on this slide a chameleon. The spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi is like a chameleon in laboratory tests, in clinical diagnosis, in differential diagnosis and in therapies. A little town at the east coast of the USA in the state Connecticut gave the name in 1981, the name Lyme disease. Lyme is a little town at the east coast and Lyme first time was described by Willy Burgdorfer. So the spirochete is named Borrelia burgdorferi. Borrelia. Borrelia is a 15 million year old bacteria. So it's no new illness, which is described by Lyme disease. It seems to be a very, very old infection in humans and also animals. And they found in 15 million year old amber a bacteria similar to Lyme disease. The question is, what is the contamination of Borrelia-infected ticks? The contamination of ticks with Borrelia in Germany is around 30 up to 50%. Astonishingly, in parks in the city of Hamburg or Munich, up to 50% of the ticks carry Borrelia burgdorferi, which can be the reason for Lyme disease. In Switzerland, we have data about 5 up to 34% of all ticks, and in Austria, 2 up to 26%, in Sweden, up to 29%, in Slovenia, 23%, in Russia, 30%. So Lyme disease or Borrelia burgdorferi is all over the world. Everywhere where we have fine ticks, we have Lyme disease. So be careful in the parks. We have also Lyme disease by Borrelia burgdorferi, transmitted by tick bites in the Central Park of New York, for example, or in Los Angeles. It seems to be that the ticks are coming also into our houses by dogs and cats, and for example, if you have horses nearby. So the ticks are coming nearer to the cities by wild animals. That's a big issue, and we have modern studies about that. You see here a carpet of pleomorphic forms of Borrelia burgdorferi in a community attached to the tick midgut epithelial cells. You, it looks like some snakes moving around there, but also you see some kind of round bodies. The round bodies are also um, atypical Borrelia burgdorferi in shape. 
This is a microscope of the spirochete uh, in the midgut of ticks, where there's a very high concentration of Borrelia burgdorferi. We start now with the symptoms, part two. The symptoms are also chameleon-like. The oldest patient with Lyme borreliosis is 5,300 years ago, the Iceman Ötzi. It is our oldest Lyme patient. Ötzi's enemies were the ticks. The scientific uh, team of SYNC found almost two-thirds of the genome of Borreburg-Dorfrei, and the scientist speculates that tattoos on the Iceman's spine and ankles and behind his right knee could have been an attempt to treat the joint pain that occurs when the condition goes untreated. So we think that uh, Ötzi has some kind of arthritis, which is a very common symptom in chronic Lyme disease. A very new aspect is now that researchers find that the ancient Iceman's infection helps Lyme disease bone loss discovery. They found out last year by a new study that there is significant bone loss in the longer bones after weeks of chronic Lyme disease. They say the bone loss developed a very rapid, at a very rapid rate, taking just four weeks to advance to osteopenia, a forerunner to the more severe form of bone loss disease, the osteoporosis. This study found the first time that the amount of bone loss directly correlated to the bacterial load by Borrelia burgdorferi found in the bones of the Iceman. This finding suggests that monitoring bone loss in human Lyme disease patients may be warranted, especially because bone loss is a significant risk factor for fractures later in life. The scientist Tang that one of our main focuses right now is on the mechanism that induces the bone loss by Borrelia burgdorferi. Cellular studies are currently underway to determine just how the bacteria interact with the bone building cells of the body, the osteoblasts. The scientist said we need to know how, how long the osteopenia lasts after bacterial infection by Borrelia burgdorferi and whether it progresses to osteoporosis. That means that patients with osteoporosis should be looked at an infection with Borrelia burgdorferi, Lyme disease. It belongs to the differential diagnosis, which is a very, very pertinent new aspect, for example, for a lot of doctors and doctors caring for osteoporosis. How can you find out now a recent infection, which is named stage one, with Borrelia burgdorferi? You can find bullseye rashes, or also it's named erythema migrans. The transmission of Borrelia burgdorferi uh, during tick bites occurs five up to seven days, but also um, up to 11 weeks after uh, the tick bite can develop a bullseye rash or erythema migrans. 20% of infected patients develop a feverish reaction, 
because of the penetration of Borrelia into the blood. So we have a summer flu. The problem is that doctors are not correlating summer flus with tick bites. No doctor will ask you for a tick bite if you suffer from a summer flu. But that can mean that you are suffering from a recent infection, stage one with Borrelia burgdorferi. A big problem is that only 30 up to 40% of Lyme patients develop a bullseye rash. And also just 30 up to 40% of chronic Lyme patients remember former tick bites. This makes it very complicated for diagnosing doctors. It's a chameleon. What about stage two and stage three? That means a progression of Lyme boliosis, Lyme disease. Stage two means a recent origin manifestation. That can happen if Borrelia is spreading around your body. Borrelia is a sparrowhead, which can move everywhere in your body and can flame every part of your body. And this can happen two up to 12 weeks, up to three months after transmission of Borrelia by a tick bite. The symptoms can develop in the peripheral nerve system, in the central nerve system, in the joints, in the tendons, in the heart, in the eyes, in the bladder, everywhere in your body you can get an infection with Borrelia burgdorferi, which can mean Lyme disease. Stage three means a chronic origin manifestation. That means if you are suffering longer than one year, or some doctors say six months of persisting symptoms. The problem is just 30%, if you remember back, up to 40% remember tick bite, and just 30 up to 40% have a bullseye rash. That makes it very complicated for diagnosing doctors to decide is it now a chronic, or maybe is it a recent, or is it a reinfection, or what is it? You can see here a bullseye rash. Bullseye rash, or it's also named erythema migrans, means stage one of Lyme disease. In the middle, there was the tick, but the tick is now gone. The tick is away. The patients, they don't feel the tick bite because tick bites you don't feel. And you see this red spreading round um, areas of the skin. This is living Borrelia burgdorferi behind that. It's moving around the skin. And that makes this bullseye rash. It looks like a bullseye. It can be also a bullseye rash which is atypical in this example behind the ear. It doesn't look like a bullseye rash because the ear is in the middle, but nevertheless, this is also an infection with Borrelia burgdorferi, stage one of Lyme disease. This has to be treated immediately. Immediately treatment, um, you don't need any antibodies or any testing, so please treat this child immediately. In stage one, some of the patients, they also can develop a lymphocytoma. Lymphocytoma is a bullseye rash of, for example, the earlobes, the soft parts, the areola, the eyelid, the genital, or it can be also peri-umbilical. The problem is Borrelia cannot move away from this part. So it sucks in this part, but it looks really like a red 
sickness like an infection with Borrelia burgdorferi, but it's not so easy to diagnose. So please look at the ear labs of your patients, and then you will find in some patients Borrelia lymphocytoma. This can also be chronic persistent if it's not treated. And I've seen patients where it's reactivated. If you go under a shower and you have it always where you had the tick bite on this side or that where the tick directly um, has bitten you into your ear lap, for example. Neuroboliosis. It's also named Bell's palsy. You see here a younger patient on the right side. It's a progression of stage one to stage two. Stage two means that it's a current infection, but it's also progressing into the spinal fluid. And this looks like a stroke, this patient, but it is an infection with Borrelia burgdorferi. And if you do a spinal fluid for this patient, a lumbar puncture, you will find the spirochetal immune answers, antibodies, or you can detect the spirochet in the spinal fluid of this patient. And this is reversible if you diagnose um, correctly, if you diagnose this patient uh, quickly, and if you treat this patient quickly. In these cases, rosefin, uh, which means ceftriaxone, is very helpful, and it's really reversible. But if you don't diagnose this, it's difficult uh, to treat it. The longer in illnesses persisted, the uh, diff more difficult they are uh, to be treated. There's a patient with arthritis on the left knee in stage two up to stage three. You see here um, a, a swollen knee, which can be also diagnosed by a puncture. And in the spine, in this fluid, you can find also Borrelia by PCR if you want to do that. Or you do some antibodies testings or some other testings. We talk later about that, how to diagnose this. But it's difficult if you see this arthritis uh, on the left knee to say this is now Lyme disease. On page 17, you find an acrodermatitis chronica atrophicans which is not so common in USA, but in Europe, we have a lot of uh, these ACA, we name it. This was a patient 92 years old with this problem of the skin. The skin is getting thinner, and you see the veins are more prominent. This infection, in most cases, by a special subspecies of Borrelia burgdorferi, which is named Borrelia aphthaliae. You don't find so many cases or very, very few cases or no cases in USA. This is a dominant problem of Europe. And we see a lot of this echodermatitis, which means a chronic infection of the skin by Borrelia burgdorferi. Astonishingly, um, there came a study in 2015 where a female uh, lost hair by Acrodermatitis chronica atrophicans. Um, so that means if you have this um, ACA uh, on the scalp, this can be an infection with Borrelia burgdorferi and you lose your hair. And this patient was treated with antibiotics and the alopecia was reversible. So all the hair came back. By my own experience, I had also two patients with that. 
And it's interestingly also if you have alopecia to think about Lyme disease. Now the discussion is going on. What does it mean, chronic Lyme borreliosis? Does it exist? What are patients telling you? If you do a lot uh, of anamnesis and talks with patients, nearly all patients, they tell you, doctor, I have a power loss or a reduction of my power mentally, physically, at work, household, sport, during my job. I have similar chronic fatigue syndrome, the doctor, or a burnout, the doctor told me. I have some drowsiness. I have some listlessness. Nearly every Lyme patient with chronic symptoms has the chronic fatigue syndrome. You see on the right side the percentage of chronic Lyme patients suffering from different symptoms. 81% of the patients, they have tingling, they tell you about ants running, numbness, needle burning, burning hands, burning feet, sensitivity problems. This is more an infection with Borrelia burgdorferi garinii, which makes um, neuropathies, peripheral neuropathies in a chronic condition. 78% of the chronic Lyme patients tell you, oh, doctor, I have neck pain on one side, I have neck stiffness on one side. Interestingly, this neck pain is in most cases on the side where the tick bite was, if the patients remember this. And it can come and go. And nobody is thinking about the correlation of neck pain with Lyme disease. Also, the patients tell you about shoulder pain. They say, oh, doctor, I have shoulder pain where my neck pain is, and it happened after tick bite. Oh, I don't know if that uh, tick bite was on this side. And also headache, dizziness. Headache is also very often on the side where the tick bite was in, co in combination with shoulder pain and neck pain. This is really one of the first symptoms if you talk with a patient. 68% of the patients, so that means 32 don't have this symptom, they have changing micron joint pain and all joints are possible. This is very typical. It's a um, spirochet and spirochet can move everywhere around your body. So you can have everywhere around your body these symptoms. It's named uh, the crate imitator. It's named uh, Lyme disease, for example, the known unknown. So it makes it really difficult for clinicians to say, is it now Lyme disease or not? 62% of the patients, they have changing migrant muscle pain. Then the general practitioner say, oh, patient, you have rheumatism. Please go uh, to the rheumatologist. And then the rheumatologist says, yeah, oh, you have uh, rheumatoid arthritis or fibromyalgia. You have something like that. Uh, what is going on with you? And then they treat with corticosteroids. They don't ask for tick bites. There's also general weakness of the body. The power is missing. The muscle power is missing. In stage one, I told about that. 20% of the patients, they say, doctor, I had a feverish infection after a tick bite. And this was exactly the stage one of Lyme disease. But in most cases, summer flu or feverish infections after tick bites are not treated. 
62% of the patients, they say, doctor, I developed mental strain, or oh, I have some kind of depression, or I have some psychosis, schizophrenia. 58%, they say, doctor, I have some back pain. I have sciatic pain syndrome. 47%, they say, doctor, I have sleeplessness. Oh, I have night set. It's a hard night set after... It happens with all of my symptoms. I got the neck pain, I got the headache, I got the night sweat, and also I have the urge to urinate between 2 and 4 o'clock at night. I cannot sleep very well. What's happening with me? That's very often at the beginning of Lyme disease of this infection. You wake up 2 up to 4 o'clock and you have sleeplessness. So throat tendency for general infections purpose simplex virus, Epstein-Barr virus infections in 39% of the patients become later to the point of multiple infections. 28% have burning eyes, overproduction of tears, blood vision, double vision, lightheadedness. They go to the eye doctor and they got new classes and no improvement. So it costs a lot of money, all of this, that what the doctors do with this patient. But nobody is looking at Lyme disease or accepting Lyme disease. And at the end, they send them to the psychiatric specialists. This is a summary of some studies we have already. They say Lyme disease is the great imitator. 20 up to 30% of Autistic disorders can be caused by Borrelia burgdorferi and 58% by mycoplasma. That was a study by Bob Pransville in 2008 done. Also, study from 1992, very old study, multiple sclerosis, myelopathies, polyneuropathies, brain tumor, encephalopathies, all can be caused by Borrelia burgdorferi, Lyme disease. It can cause meningitis, encephalitis, neuritis, mania, depression, schizophrenia, anorexia, dementia, also from 1994, a paper of the psychiatric specialists in USA. Another um, paper was about that 90% of chronic fatigue patients are Lyme positive. Another study from Leida Metman, very famous medical doctor, nearly Nobel Prize winner, um, she said in 1990. 1980, most fibromyalgia patients are Lyme positive. A study that also Borrelia can cause Parkinsonism. Another study which came up in 2014, that's around three years ago, that pure Lyme dementia exists and has a good outcome after antibiotics. It is advisable to do Lyme serology in demented patients. That means a revolution in medicine. If uh, really dementia is a big problem for all the people, then you have to look for Lyme disease, and then you can help them by antibiotics. It's a completely new aspect how to treat dementia, Alzheimer's disease. I want to show you now two case reports. Case report one is about a chronic Lyme disease patient with a T-cell immune response. This was a patient, 43 years old, suffering over three years from persistent paresthesia of the left leg, 80% blindness of the left eye, progressive myalgia, recurrent dizziness, substantial loss of stamina, and a very high risk of occupational disability. 
The diagnosis very typically by neurologists was multiple sclerosis. The spinal fluid and the laboratory tests were all negative. No Borrelia antibodies were found in the spinal fluid. No chronic IgG synthesis in the form of oligoclonal bands in the spinal fluid. The Borrelia IgM and IgG ELISA and Western blots all several times found to be negative. So there was the idea that it could be Lyme disease. And the therapy was nevertheless by these neurologists. They gave corticosteroids and they uh, had the patient had more and more symptoms by this corticosteroid therapy and the patient suffered from bad side effects from the corticosteroids. You find here the initial findings of the Borrelia testings I did with this patient with Borrelia spot and the CD57 before antibiotic treatment. And you see here that the Borrelia antibodies were completely negative, but the Borrelia Elispot was high positive. You find at the bottom the results, 35 and 8 were the results. Also, the CD57 natural killer cells, absolute, were 40. I said to the patient, okay, maybe you have a chronic Lyme disease. The reason for your um, multiple sclerosis, or you have both, lice and flea. And now this patient was treated with ceftriaxone intravenously, and this patient was completely cured from multiple sclerosis, suffering three years badly from that. The correct diagnosis after that was for me a chronic neuroboliosis with multiple sclerosis-like symptoms. Patient is clinically completely symptom-free till nowadays. And what you see here at this report, all laboratory results completely were negative. CD57 cells were 180 per microliter, and the ELI spot was completely negative. So great therapy success, so we can cure multiple sclerosis. It is possible. Now we come to the part three, slide 24, about laboratory tests. This is my special field. I'm doing it now for over 30 years. In the field of Lyme disease, I'm doing now 20 years diagnostic tests from the beginning of 1992. So it's a long time, 25 years. We started with the first testings in Germany with Western blots and IFAs for the infection with Borrelia burgdorferi. But Borrelia burgdorferi in the laboratory test is also chameleon-like. You will see it now. I come now to the slide 25, and I want to tell about the B-cellular immune answers, which means IgG, IgM antibodies, and we perform ELISA, immunoblot, the modern serospot, the microarray. We are looking for antibodies by that. Important for me what is the half-life time of antibodies? What does it mean, a half-life time? A half-life time means a measure of the mean survival time of antibody molecules following the formation, usually expressed as the time required to eliminate 50% of a known quantity of immune globulin from the animal body. But important is that the half-life times uh, they have variations from one 
immune globulin class to another. So immune globulin M, it has a half-life time of five days. Immune globulin A, 14 days. And immune globulin G, or you name it IgG, 21 days. So the best reflection for uh, immune globulins in a short time would be to do IgM or IgA, but not IgG. Laboratory tests for Lyme disease diagnosis are really a major trap. It's like rolling the dice. Lyme disease is not always detectable by antibody tests. And there's no standardization in the world for antibody tests. No standardization. I will show you now. And big problems, sensitivity problems of the ELISA. Sensitivity means the percentage of false negative results. False negative is sensitivity. Here is a laboratory example from my daily work. There's a negative Borrelia ELISA, but a positive Western blot. How can that happen? The Western blot is normally the confirmation test, but, and the ELISA is the screening test. So the screening test has failed. This patient was full of Borrelia antibodies, and if you just do the ELISA, you fail in this. You miss the diagnosis. You miss this patient. You misdiagnose this patient. That's a really horrible thing if you do the ELISA. The question is, what, what is the sensitivity? What is the percentage of false negatives of Borrelia antibody tests? And also the question, always in laboratory medicine, we want to know how many false positives do we find. False positives, also not good. What you see in these studies from 1993 starting up to 2010, and we come to other later, you see that the specificity is not the problem. It's really good, 96%, 99%. But we have big problems with the sensitivity if we have so many false negative results. It's up to 29%, 18%. That's horrible. The average of the sensitivity is 43%. So if you have 10 patients with chronic Lyme disease, you miss 6 from 10 just doing the antibodies by ELISA and Western blots. There came a new study last year from Michael Owen from England and Professor Puri from England, and they also said by a review of 50, 50 research studies, 18 were included where the tests were commercialized, available, and the mean sensitivity for all tests was 59.5%. So that's very close um, to what I have seen, 40 up 43, 59. So they, you miss four from 10 patients by the summary of all of the studies. The sensitivity for each test uh, was a variation from 62% for Western blots, 62.3% uh, for ELISA, and for the C6, it was just 53%. So C6 is no good testing. C6, ELISA, you miss 50% um, of the patients. They're all false negative. In this study, they said, the sensitivity for samples classified as acute disease was 35%. 
with a corresponding sensitivity of 64% with patients' um, samples defined as convalescent. So this, these are horrible data. You miss in acute Lyme disease stage 1 up to 6, 7 from 10 patients also. So don't believe in the antibodies testing in Lyme disease. This is a new test. Uh, it's now developed for antibodies. It's named the Sierra Spot, the microarray test. Microplates are coated with several antigen spots. It's processed like Nilisa. Uh, we have a reader, a special microspot reader, and it's interpreted by using multiplex softwares. And very important, we test for all three different European and US Borrelia subspecies. Borrelia burgdorferi sensu stricto, Borrelia burgdorferi gariniae, and Borrelia burgdorferi aftheliae. Now it is possible to quantify the Sierra spot microarray, but not the western blot. So this is one part of the problem of the western blot. This is my heart, where I want to talk about my diagnostic heart. After finding out that this ELISA is so horrible, it's like rolling the dice with chronic infected patients. We miss so many patients. Um, then I looked at the T-cells by the modern ILISPOT testings. ILISPOT is now going around the world. We look for the T-cells for the lymphocytes by that test. Uh, this is a comparison of ELISA by antibodies, antibody testing, versus the ILISPOT in Lyme stage 1. That means the bulsaresis. The ILISPOT showed 75%, whereas the ELISA, uh, the antibody test showed just 45%. So we have 30% more sensitivity in bulsaresis by the ILISPOT. Uh, that means you have a higher, a better test result by the ILISPOT. So these uh, lymphocy lymphocytic tests, uh, they are better in, in uh, the diagnosis in stage one, bulsaresis, than uh, the ELISA. The ILISPOT during antibiotics, it's very important. You have changes. The lymphocytes, they live in your blood six up to eight weeks. That means around two months. The antibody titer can persist years months, years. So you have shorter reactions of the T-cellular immune answers in comparison with the antibody titer. So it makes much more sense to do activity testings if the patient has still active Lyme infection by the early spot and not by the antibody titer. This shows you that you can also decide by the early spot during antibiotics if your therapy is successful or not successful. Because, remember back, the lymphocytes, they live around two months. Antibodies can be months or years. So if the lymphocytes, this immune answer is going down, then the early spot will get negative. And you have a sign for successful therapies. There are some studies done by different scientists about that. So I'm not um, the inventor of that. We know that the T-cellular immune responses are more important to monitor therapy success than the antibodies. Now I want to go into the deep a little about this ILISPOT test. It belongs 
The early spot belongs to the interferon gamma release assays, and it reflects the current T-cell activity of bacteria and viruses. The T-cell spot interferon gamma release assay was approved by the American FDA in May 2011 for mycobacterium tuberculosis. And the FDA in USA, they said, a positive result suggests that an infection is likely, a negative result suggests that an infection is unlikely. And they said in this paper, results can be available within 24 hours. So the FDA has approved the ELISPOR test. That's wonderful, that's great. But they don't accept results for Borrelia burgdorferi. This is a summary what the ELISPOT can do. The ELISPOT assay showed a specificity of 82% in neuroborreliosis, which is really a good result. 82% means that 18% can be false positive, but 82% of Lyme patients are diagnosed correctly by the ELISPOT as a neuroborreliosis. So that means patients with neurological symptoms. In another study, they said antibodies by Borrelia uh, and symptomatic children, and they compared it with children with previous Lyme borreliosis and control group of uh, healthy people. And the blood samples were analyzed um, for Borrelia interferon gamma release assays by the ELISPOT. And in this study, there was also found no significant differences in cytokine secretion between the groups. So that means uh, the early spot was 100% specific in this study. Uh, there's a book which said, okay, the early spot is now a new T-cell test being a game changer for Lyme disease. The early spot assay provides a robust, highly reproducible data, the ELISPOT can be retested to get additional information in follow-up assays, and the two assay systems, the ELISPOT and the CD57 cells, I come later to that, complement each other in the quest to understand T-cell-mediated immunity in vivo. This is a good data. You have 94% specificity in this paper, and 84% sensitivity. This is really good if you remember back to the Borrelia antibodies by Western Blots or ELISA. This is horrible. This is 18% or 40%. What is it? So forget the ELISA. What do we use for Borrelia antigens in this Borrelia ELI spot? We use the full antigen. It's from the Sensostricto reference strain. We use another antigen, which is from OSPA, from Zendostricto, from Apcelii and Garinii, and we use also in, as an antigen in the test the OSPC and DBPA. And very important, we have another antigen, the third antigen is LFA1. It's named lymphocyte function antigen 1. Um, this is very often associated with autoimmune diseases, with collagenosis, like Schuchen syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis, vasculitis, and in patients with positive results in the early spot for LFA1, you have to do the ANA CCP antibodies 
and the ANCA antibodies. This shows you an example for a Borrelia spot test report, and you see here the full antigen is 15, it's positive, the OSP mix is 16, it's positive, and the LFL1 is also positive by 10. So in this case, you have also to look for autoimmune disorders in this patient. It's very uh, important message you got by this spot. And interestingly, the rheumatologists, they accept the LFA1 testing, but they don't accept the testing for the full antigen or the OSP mix. Currently, we can do a lot of spots. We can do against Borrelia burgdorferi. We have included all three different main subspecies in the world. We can do nowadays for Miyamoto. Miyamoto is more and more found in the ticks, more and more patients with Miyamoto. It makes feverish reactions. It makes musculoskeletal symptoms. We can do the early spot for Chlamydia pneumoniae. We can do it for Chlamydia trachomatis. We can do it for Ehrlichia anaplasma. We can do it for Yersinia. And we do a lot of these early spots for EBV, CMV, and herpes simplex virus 1-2. And in a short time, we will get available the Bartonella ilispot and the Barbesia ilispot. We come later to the co-infection. Shows you that we have now a possibility also to diagnose by the ilispot for Borrelia myomotoi. Now I want to talk a short time about the CD57 natural killer cells. We are doing that by flow cytometry. The CD3 minus CD57 plus natural killer cells belong to the lymphocytes. They are reduced in chronic Lyme disease. So if I find a, a low CD57 cells, then I can the, tell the doctor or the therapist or the patient, I can tell you have the symptoms longer than one year and you have a cytokine storm and you have surely the musculoskeletal symptoms. So it's a chronic activity marker. There's also a study by Professor Stricker. He found out that 100% of chronic neuroboliosis show low CD57 cells. The CD57 cells were in the former guidelines of the ILATS, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society in USA. And in these guidelines, they said uh, reduction is a sign for untreated and not adequately treated Lyme disease patients. And after the end of therapies of chronic Lyme disease, the normalization should be more than 130 per microliter. That means it's coming to therapy success. It's a good prognosis for this patient. But I have seen that it's not highly specific. I have also found it low in other bacterial infections, especially chlamydia and mycoplasma infections. The reference ranges are for Lyme patients lower than 130 per microliter and for healthy patients higher than 130 per microliter. There came a paper in uh, 2000 um, last year no, 2016, yes, last year, and it shows um, the low CD57 cells in autism, in autistic spectrum disorder. This paper didn't say now we have Lyme disease, but 
the paper said that this is a sign for autism and can be used also as a diagnostic tool for autism. And maybe it can be Lyme disease. So slide 47 shows you a summary of modern laboratory testings. Uh, first, we do the Borrelia IgM and IgG antibodies by the modern microarray, the Sierra spot. We have around sensitivity 60%, but specificity 99%. That's wonderful. Sensitivity is also not good. It's bad. And we also add the Borrelia early spot. And then we look for the current Borrelia activity. Sensitivity is 84%. Specificity is up to 100%. And the test we are doing in chronic Lyme disease are the CD57 cells, uh, the parameter for chronic bodily infections, chronic bodily activity, sensitivity 70%, not such a high one, but the specificity we don't know. Actually, we think also it's a marker for chronic chlamydia and other bacterial infections. If you do all of these three tests together, you have over 90% sensitivity, not 100%. We cannot exclude by laboratory testing chronic Lyme disease. Chronic Lyme disease still remains a clinical diagnosis supported by laboratory test results. And also very important for me, don't leave the patient alone. Don't treat the patient two weeks or three weeks. Please monitor the patient for up to six weeks after end of therapies to verify whether the therapy has been successful or not. We name it laboratory staging process. Part four, co-infections transmitted by ticks. Here is the chameleon again. We know that ticks are named the dirty needle. They are full of pathogens, full of different bacteria and viruses. Maybe protozoal infections are also possible. Here are the main co-infections. Babesia, Bartonella, Lichianoplasma, Rickettsia, Coxiella, Chlamydia, Mycoplasma, viruses, EBV, CMV, herpes simplex virus. The ticks are the vector for multiple infections. They are coming out now more and more papers showing that also anaplasma is in the ticks, for example, in Romania, that also across Europe we have more and more anaplasma infections. We have also co-infections in the same tick, the same tick Borrelia plus Ehrlichia plus Bartonella in Netherlands. We have a new, a very brand new bacteria was found, Candidatus neoelichia mycorrhensis. And it was found together with anaplasma in southern Hungary. Borrelia was found in the ticks with anaplasma and together with Babesia duncani. The PCR evidence was shown. Also, uh, in, but for Bartonella henselle and Borrelia burgdorferi in special ticks, the Ixodes scapularis ticks, and it was also found in the uh, sp spinal fluid of patients with neurological symptoms. So, these patients were infected at the same time with Bartonella and Borrelia, not just one infection. And also in the Czech Republic and Slovakia, 
there's also was found the Candidatus Rickettsia. The last study on page 50 shows you that 46% uh, were positive of the ticks for Borrelia burgdorferi by culture, 12% for Rabesia by PCR, and 5 up to 10% for Bartonella. So the ticks are the dirty needle, and I think it's uh, uh, the start of a new era to find out more and more in the ticks. Uh, the ticks will be uh, one of the most important vectors in the future in the whole world to make people sick by different pathogens, bacteria, and viruses. It was an interesting um, thing in, in Japan happening. Uh, the zoo, they, in Japan, they imported reptiles from different 28 animals uh, from 12 different countries around the world. But with these reptiles, they found ticks on these reptiles and these reptiles they brought in in Japan the first time in 2015, Rickettsia and Elichia. So the veterinarians, they have to look for these um, um, reptiles uh, if they are healthy, but they didn't look at the ticks. So they imported in Japan by the ticks, uh, by these reptiles and the ticks from all over the world, new, we name it hotspots, new endemic situation for Rickettsia and Elichia. And now the ticks can also infect humans and also other animals. This is my favorite co-infection. Chlamydia, or named Chlamydophila pneumoniae, is the intracellular bacteria. It makes cystic forms, aberrant forms, it makes biofilms, and it was found in ticks. Normally, it's an airborne infection. It's human-to-human -human transmission, or what I think, it's reactivated in chronic Lyme disease. The veterinarians did a lot of studies about that. They found chlamydia infections in horses, koalas, or frogs. And they diagnosed the koalas with chlamydia infections, and they treat the koalas in hospitals in Australia with chronic fatigue syndrome, um, the koalas are suffering from that by the chlamydia infection, and the horses too. They treat these animals with antibiotics, and the animals, they got healthy by these antibiotics. But if you are a park ranger in Australia, and you say, doctor, I have a chlamydia pneumonia infection, I have chronic fatigue, you will never get treated for that. So what does it mean? Could it be that a cough from a horse can infect the horse riders? Or can the, the, uh, the cough from a koala infect the park ranger? Or can the horse rider infect the horse by a cough with chlamydia pneumoniae? Or if a frog has a cough, can you get infected by the cough from a frog? These are very interesting models, and I think we don't know exactly what's happening about that. The symptoms of chlamydia pneumoniae are cough, a slight throat pain, hoarseness, sinusitis, so please ask all of your patients for sinusitis, atypical pneumonia, the meningoencephalitis, bronchiolitis, myocarditis, Guillain-Barré syndrome, arthritis, and tendovaginitis. And the associations are very interesting. You find chlamydia in Alzheimer's, 
in multiple sclerosis, in depressions, in fibromyalgia, in ME or chronic fatigue syndrome, in heart attacks, in acute ischemic strokes, in atherosclerosis, in autism, in Parkinsonism, in rheumatoid arthritis, or in asthma, etc. So that means that this chlamydia pneumonia is doing exactly the same symptoms and symptoms like Borrelia burgdorferi. And if you have a patient with Borrelia burgdorferi, you have to find out if it can be a co-infection with chlamydia or maybe it's no Borrelia infection, it's an infection with chlamydia or it's both or it's nothing. Now you need laboratory testing. You can do the chlamydia pneumonia spot. You can do the chlamydia pneumonia IgA antibodies. Remember back, I told you the IgA antibodies are so important. They have a short half-life time. In a newer study in 2011, they found chlamydia pneumonia in adults with acute ischemic strokes, 60.8%. That was a case control study. That means there is an association with atherosclerosis and acute ischemic strokes. That's not Lyme disease. But the symptoms can be similar. You can also try to isolate chlamydia by PCI in blood, sputum, or in other secretions. Co-infection with Epstein-Barr virus. The EBV is obligate intracellular, and also chlamydia is intracellular, and also Borrelia is intracellular. Borrelia is one advantage. Borrelia is also extracellular, but also intracellular. All other co-infection and viruses are all intracellular, very important for therapies. So the EBV is a huge problem worldwide and also in the combination with Borrelia burgdorferi infections, it's named the kissing disease. This is high contagious. It can be in saliva. If you drink the same glass, you can get infected. The same toothbrush, blood, sex, blood transfusion, organ transplantations. The symptoms are chronic fatigue, Fever, flu-like symptoms, nausea, loss of appetite, lymph adenitis, swollen lymph nodes in the neck, rashes, sore throat, weakness, sore muscles. And nowadays we are looking more and more for the association of these EBV infections with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. This is a very important thing to look patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which is really a tragedy to look for EBV infections, so important. How to find out? Laboratory testing. These are all accredited testings, internationally accredited testings, high quality industrial standards. You can do the early antigen antibodies for reactivations or for chronic infections, and very, very important, the early spot test. If you find an EBV lytic antigen, this is a sign for active EBV infection. Normally, EBV is in a latency, and if you have a combination of both latency and lytic antigen, you have surely parts of the EBV virus which is active and parts which are not active. So it's really good to diagnose, and I find so many patients in the world infected and active infected in the complexity of multiple infections with Borrelia burgdorferi, 
chlamydia, pneumonia, and EBV or other infections. Herpes simplex virus, one, two. You all know about that. Herpes simplex virus, it's also a virus intracellular transmission. It's by saliva, sharing drinks, sexually transmitted. What does it do? I think a lot of you have or had watery blisters on the skin or in the mouth region, on the lips, the genitals, anus, flu-like symptoms. It makes fever, muscle aches, swollen lymph nodes, problems urinating, the keratitis, also possible. But for me, more important is what can it do, the complications. And here you find the multiple sclerosis. You find the Alzheimer's disease. You find the loss of vision. You find also the problem with pneumonitis, encephalitis. So multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease. If you have a patient with these symptoms, you have to look at herpes simplex virus. I had now a patient with a Parkinsonism, and the patient has a, or had a herpes simplex virus 1 infection. And this has to be treated. And it's a different treatment than you do normal Parkinsonism treatment. How can you find out? You can find out by the IgA antibodies. IgA, a really great testing. And the Elispot, really great testing, easily to find out. And you find, I would say, in the complexity of this chronic Lyme discussion, about 70-80% active infections with EBV, CMV, cytomegalovirus, and herpes simplex virus. Now we come to my favorite virus. It's a Coxsackie virus. Coxsackie virus, Coxsackie is a village in USA, the East Coast. The first cases were described there. It's an intracellular virus. It's uh, transmitted by oral contamination from the feces, by droplets, body fluids, utensils, toys, children in kindergarten, or diaper-changing table. What about the symptoms? We have two different groups. Group A is known to do the herb angina and the AHC and the hand, foot, and mouth disease. Group B is doing a lot of myocarditis, pericarditis, and hepatitis pleurodynia. Group A and B, that's interesting. Uh, we have symptoms, fever, rashes, or throat, diarrhea, cough, fatigue again, conjunctivitis, headache again, night sweats, here we are, loss of appetite, and meningitis. So you have night sweats. You cannot say, is it now Lyme disease or is it an infection with Coxsackie virus? But the complications are also very, very important in the Coxsackie virus complexity. It makes a CNS disease. It's similar to polio infections. And it makes also, for me interesting, the insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus. It makes a myositis. It makes heart problems. If you have a patient with heart rhythm disturbances, please look for Coxsackie virus. And the polyneuropathies are very interesting in this complexity of the Coxsackie virus. How to find out? We can do the IgA for it. We have uh, testing for subtype A7 and B1. B1 is uh, especially associated with this 
um, heart rhythm problems. And if you want to test, the IgA is really a very good testing. Uh, it's nearly 100% specific, and sensitivity is also very high, up to 100%. So accredited testings internationally accepted this test. The question is now, multiple symptoms, multiple infections. Yes, multiple symptoms, multiple infections. We name it chronic overlapping symptoms. The symptoms are not specific for an infection. That means the more symptoms you have for an illness, the higher is the probability that you're suffering from this infection. So you find, for example, in Yersinia infection, joint pain, concentration problems. You find also stomach ache. You find diarrhea in Yersinia infections. You have maybe dark urine. Um, you have uh, some heart problems, for example, if you have Coxsackie virus infections. So if you have a patient with a fatigue or a cough, you cannot say now it's a glamydia infection. It can be also a lichia infection or a ketsia infection. It can be also a Coxsackie virus infection. If you have a patient, for example, uh, with rashes, it can be Bartonella, Alicia, Rickettsia, Yersinia, EBV virus, Coxsackie virus, or maybe Borrelia infection. If a patient with fatigue can be Borrelia, Chlamydia, Mycoplasma infection, Barbesia infection, EBV, Coxsackie virus. So the, the symptom is not specific for an illness. Uh, that cannot be. But the more symptoms you have for one of these infections, the higher, you, you the closer you come to this diagnosis that you really suffer from this infection. That was a challenge for me some years ago, and I said nobody can remember all of the symptoms which you find in the teaching books belonging to which infection. So I did this co-infection checklist for it, and uh, the co-infection checklist is very easily done. Uh, we have automized it now. Um, you can find it on the homepage. It's free of any cost, and it's an easy help helping tool for you uh, to find out which infection is possible in which patient. This was the evaluation template for doctors, naturopaths developed by me and another patient, uh, but we have automized now. I want to show you a practical example by that. That was a patient coming to me with stomach ache, fever, feverish feeling, lack of concentration, forgetfulness, short-term memory loss, which is very typical also for Lyme disease, yellowish color of the skin, painful joint, general aches and pain, flu-like symptoms also typical for Lyme disease, heart problems, headache, uh, fatigue again, muscle pain, shivering, uh, also nausea and dark urine. So you would say now this is a typical Lyme disease patient. Okay, I agree with you. These are a lot of symptoms you find in Lyme disease. So you have to test this patient surely for Lyme disease. Why not? But in this ranking on the right side, you found, uh, we found out that eight symptoms are belonging to chlamydia pneumonia infection of, in this uh, specific patient. Seven symptoms for mycoplasma and Coxsackie virus on position two of this ranking. Position three was Bartonella and EBV CMV, the, the herpes virus group, uh, with six symptoms for Bartonella and EBV infection. That means um, multiple infection, multiple symptoms, multiple infection. But by this ranking, you get a higher specificity for 
individual infections in the individual patients. The patients are completely different from each other by these infections. Same patient. I found IgG antibodies by ELISA. Patients could be happy that we found these antibodies. Also, the immunoblot or Western blot was positive, the confirmation test. And also, the ELI spot was active. That means it was a current infection, the last two months active, um, in the ELI spot, the documentation by that. Yersinia. Remember back, Yersinia was also on the position of uh, this patient, position four, no, five, sorry. And I found IgA antibodies, 8.6 in this patient. So you find also Yersinia elispot 20. So that's really a high activity against Yersinia. And the IgA, an active Yersinia infection in this same patient with Lyme disease. Chlamydia pneumonia, the IgA was 3.5. Also active Chlamydia pneumonia infection. Corresponding to that, the elispot was 18. So that means the patient had two immune reactions, IgA positivity and the early spot, cellular activity and the IgA. This is double confirmation of an active infection for Yersinia and for Chlamydia. Mycoplasma, also IgA 2.0. And you see that the IgM is not helpful in chronic infections, not helpful. The patient was chronically ill with the symptoms, not acute infection. The IgM is not important. You don't need the IgM for mycoplasma. It doesn't make really sense. Do the IgA in chronic infections. In hospitals, they do the IgM. For the atypical pneumonia, it's important, but not for chronic conditions. Always do the IgA if the laboratory can do the IgA. We don't have IgA testings for all. So cytomegalovirus, we don't have an IgA, unfortunately, but the IgG was positive and the early spot was four. It was not a high activity against cytomegalovirus. The next report, the same patient, slide 67. The IgA was 1 to 100, tied an active Coxsackie virus infection. The same patient, the same point of time, completely different pathogen. The Ketsia also for Rickettsia Rickettsi, 1 to 156 titer, also signed for possible Rickettsia infection. And the EBV, at that time I didn't do the early antigen, now I will do, I do that um, by a new technique. Uh, but the early spot, the lighting antigen, what I told you before, is definitely it was positive, active EBV infection. And at the end, CD57 cells low 37. So you cannot tell now is it now the CD7, is it caused by chlamydia, infection by mycoplasma, by Yersinia, or maybe Borrelia? I cannot tell you, but this patient had a cytokine storm, joint problems, arthritis, and all this cytokine storm in the body makes the CD57 cells low. Summary. The co-infection checklist showed you a multiple infection with Borrelia, chlamydia, mycoplasma, Coxsackie virus, EBV, Bicetia and Yersinia, suspicion clinically by symptoms, ranking. Laboratory test results show you exactly the same. Borrelia infection, chlamydia infection, mycoplasma infection, Coxsackie, EBV, Bicetia, Yersinia, cytomegalovirus. So this patient was suffering at the same point of time from five bacteria and three 
viruses active in the same patient. This has consequences for your therapy. What are now the therapy options? It's like peeling the onion. You have intracellular infections. This is the core. You have to aim the intracellular infections, the biofilms, the intracellular infections, bacteria and viruses. And you have around this core, you have the genetics. You have the epigenetics. Around this, you have the differential diagnosis. You have allergies. You have intolerances. You have accidents. You have dental status. Don't forget the teeth in all of this. That we need the dentist to look at these patients. And you have past or present comorbidities. And around this all, you have contaminated water. You have the heavy metals. You have the environmental toxins. You have the electromagnetic fields, the EMFs. You have the geostress. And you have the pesticides and occupational hazards. I'm sure I have forgotten something in this, but it's like peeling in the onion, but in the middle, in the, in the core, they are the bacteria and viruses. So how to reach them, how to come close to them, how to destroy them. I did a paper in 2015 with, about biofilms and pleomorphic forms. So, so Borrelia, it makes this pleomorphic, this cystic forms like chlamydia, like mycoplasma. So they protect themselves. And it should be taken into consideration as being clinically relevant and influence the development of diagnostics and treatment protocols. So you have to aim the pleomorphic forms, which is really difficult, and the biofilms. Biofilms, you see it on the right side, these are the green slime you see here. It's communication, it's protection, it's chatting areas. Um, so these are the protection mechanism of these different pathogens. If you, for example, have a chlamydia infection or sinusitis, you produce some slime. So please ask your patient, for example, for sinusitis and for slime or for the cough. And this can be this chlamydia mycoplasma infection in the deep, or maybe it's a Borrelia infection. What are now the therapy options by antibiotics? That's the traditional medicine part. We know that we can use antibiotics against Borrelia, Chlamydia, Mycoplasma, and all other co-infections, bacterial co-infections. We have the group of the macrolides, azithromycin, claritomycin. We have the group of the tetracyclines, doxycycline, minocycline. We have the group of the metronidazole and the tinidazoles. We have the cephalosporin, ceftriaxone, cefuroxime, cefotaxime. The disadvantage of the cephalosporins are that they are not intracellular working, just extracellular. So they might be not first choice treatment, but remedies that have an intracellular action, hydroxychloroquine or named Plaquenil and Artemisia artemisinin. This is an overview about all antibiotic options you have. You have to look that you enter the uh, spinal fluid if you have some neurological symptoms. You have to look that you work intracellular, and you have to work against cystic form. And if you go through this, the best ones would be metronidazole or the cold drug, the hydroxychloroquine. The other ones have all restrictions if you go through this slide. This is an example for chronic Borrelia infections for antibiotic strategies. What we are doing or trying, we try to combine 
the different positive effects of antibiotics. We use, for example, azithromycin in combination with doxycycline or minocycline. Minocycline uh, can penetrate the spinal fluid, uh, 40%, doxycycline, just a little percentage. So minocycline is more powerful in neurological symptoms than doxycycline. And we also try to add hydroxychloroquine or artemisia, artemisinin. And after that, we also try to do a course with metronidazole to come intracellular. This is therapy against bacteria, but not against viruses. What about the immune system and biofilms? We need immune modulation by vitamins, minerals, probiotics, chelation, detoxification, etc. We can use some herbal products, alternative pathways. We can use bio, or we should use biofilm breakers, serapaptase, lumprokinase, natokinase. Everything depends on our immune system. It's so important to the immune system. So many therapists I know worldwide, they have great success with vitamin C, up to 70 gram, 50 gram, not just 5 gram like this Myers cocktail set. Myers cocktail is very established by Professor John Mayers from uh, John Hopkins University in Baltimore. He did a combination, very powerful, with vitamin C, B1, B6, B12, magnesium, dixpantenol. Um, you can do it one infusion per week. Some do it two uh, infusions. Some do it also uh, more often. Um, this is, means immune support. Some do just vitamin C. Vitamin C seems to be to play a key role in the treatment of all of these infections, viruses plus bacteria. Some use intravenous glutathione. Some use intravenous curcumin. Some use intravenous alpha-lipoic acid. So this is just an example on what you could do, the herbal support for the TH1 system. Maybe you can use Samento, Comanda, Quina, Takuna. Takuna is very interesting in virus treatments, I have to tell you. Noni, Banderol, Burberry, Glucane, Procyanidine, the curcuma, very established melatonin, the DHEA, selenium, zinc, magnesium. There's one missing, hotunia. Hotunia is a new herb, or not a new herb. Um, Stephen Boone has written it in his book. It's really uh, good working by studies against um, the infections with Coxsackie virus, enteroviruses in combination with Takuna and Samento. To support, you have the herbal support for the TH2 cells by Muir, by statins, progesterone. Slide 79, also stevia, the whole leaf extract, can be a therapy option, the herb against Borrelia burgdorferi. In this study by Eva Sharpe, it was more powerful than doxycycline, than the antibiotic in vitro, I have to say, not in vivo. But we don't have so many in vivo studies about herbs and treatment of chronic infections. This is an example of where we go the way. We have to treat the viruses. There's no Lyme patient without a virus infection, with EBV, Coxsackie, Herpes simplex, varicella, Sosterweis, HHV6, HHV8, HHV7. So there are so many viruses. 
What we are doing now is a combination of the Kuna, Berber Pinella for detoxification, Zamento, Serapeptase, and there's a doctor in USA, Dr. Cowden. Uh, I asked him two years ago, Dr. Cowden, what to do against virus infections. I have so many. And he said, yeah, try the Takuna and the Samento and uh, the Stevia against Borrelia. But also we have now the Hotunia, which is not mentioned here. Hotunia um, is really, I think, a good herb, a good um, complementary herb in this complexity against viruses. But this is not all. We can try to destroy by herbs. We can try to influence, um, to really to destroy them. Um, but we also have to support the immune system. And what I have learned the last years that in USA, very established multi-messenger to improve the CD57 cells, the artemisinin uh, with the co-cumin combination, the SOD, ATP fuel to work on the mitochondrial pathways, the transfer factors, which works against Lyme bacteria and viruses, the messenger N1, which works against mycoplasma chlamydian viruses, and the lumprokinase or serapeptase. So what we are do or trying now to treat against viruses and to do immune support, um, because you cannot treat viruses with antibiotics. If you treat the virus infection with antibiotics, the patients will worsen and you will don't have a good outcome for the patient. And you provoke the viruses, they will replicate more. And this is exactly what I have seen in so many patients by this ELISPOT testings and the IgA for Coxsackie virus. The big question is now what I have heard about the LDN, low-dose naltrexone. This is very interesting. I met last weekend Dr. Rich Horowitz in Venice, in Italy, and he also talked about LDN and he used, he's a very uh, established uh, therapist uh, for Lyme disease, and he said, yes, he treated more than 1,000 patients with Lyme disease and co other chronic infections, and 75 of them, uh, percent they improved in fatigue, arthralgia and myalgia. So that means uh, the musculoskeletal symptoms can be really have a good outcome by this LDN treatment. And I think what we also need uh, to do some studies and also we have to look more for LDN. I think it's really uh, what I've heard by many therapists in my network, a lot of them are treating with LDN, uh, not um, finding in the network to each other. So we have to motivate them to do some studies, to do cooperation, to share experiences. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website www.ldnresearchtrust.org